The scripture we're looking at this morning is one verse in particular. Uh, We will put it into some context in just a little bit. But it comes from one of the minor prophets, um, from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Some of us may have been introduced to this particular verse uh, in a scripture song somewhere in the past. Um, because it is a delightful scripture song, but you'll just have to look it up online. I'm not going to entertain you with that this morning. Um, But it's a significant statement about God's relationship to his people. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we would ask that as we have customarily asked, week after week after week, as we come together in the context of worship, your gathered people together, to be able to hear your word, what you would say to us, and how this word might be opened before us with uh, integrity, with clarity, uh, with biblical competence and faithfulness. And we pray for that now. Father, our desire is to see uh, the great and marvelous things that spring out of your word. Our desire is to feed upon uh, that bread who is Christ, but also that bread that Christ has given in terms of the word, the very living word of God. And this is what we pray for. We ask that you, by your scriptures, would do those things that no other piece of literature, uh, no other communication by any human being has ever been able to perform. And that is to lead us into true wisdom and to give us the right kind of desires and to build us up in a faith that has granted to us everlasting life. For this we pray. And also, during these difficult times, that we as Christians might truly be uh, the salt of the earth and the light of the world, reflecting in every way the great truths of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to begin with some context with respect to this prophecy. Uh, It occurs during what we might call in-between times. Uh, It's in between the time in which the northern kingdom of Israel, remember the two kingdoms had split and broken shortly after uh, the time of Solomon. And they had existed as two kinds of competing kingdoms, uh, all considered the people of God, the northern kingdom far less faithful, the southern kingdom having the uh, actual the, the grant of the, the Davidic kinghood, kingship, so their, their kings were all descendants of David. So in some sense, the, the northern part of the kingdom was more apostate. The southern kingdom was more truly trying to be the people of God. They had Jerusalem, they had the temple, they had the priesthood and all of those things. And yet God considered both kingdoms still his people. But the northern people... Uh, fairly quickly, within 150 years or so, became so grievous in their sins against God that God raised up the great nation of Assyria, and they came and conquered the lands and took 
uh, the northern kingdom away, ten tribes, all the way back to Assyria, leaving uh, just Judah and parts of Benjamin. Uh, Not much at all. But Judah then continued to exist. Uh, Some of that brought about some faithfulness. There were some good kings. But at this particular time, uh, we are looking toward what's going to happen in 586, some 40 to 50 years from then, from when Zephaniah is preaching. There's judgment that's coming. And it's a judgment that's now coming at the hands of the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, Babylon, if Assyria was bad, uh, Babylon is even greater and, and in many ways worse. But God is using Babylon not only to judge his people and to discipline them, but to judge all of the nations that are surrounding uh, Israel, Jerusalem. Uh, all of the kingdoms in this area of the world are getting judged by God. The sins that God is judging the nations for are the sins of violating the two greatest commandments. As you know, the two greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. And and all of these pagan nations were violating the first commandment because they were worshiping idols. They were rejecting the true knowledge of the true God as it's given in creation. They were rejecting the true knowledge of the true God as they heard, heard this witness to by Israel itself in terms of its witness in the world. They were rejecting all of that and staying pagan in terms of their commitment to all of these nature gods, which also granted to them uh, a sexual liberty, which, of course, the word of God prohibits. And then they were violating the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, because it was characteristic of these pagan nations that the strong would take advantage of the weak and the ungodly would take advantage of those who sought to be godly. And so the two great commandments violated again and again and again. But that's the same reason why God brought judgment against the northern kingdom. And now, through Zephaniah and other prophets of this time, predicting, prophesying the impending doom upon Jerusalem and Israel, Judah, at this point, God's people. It's in between times. And so the first three Two and a half chapters of the book of Zephaniah uh, is like a, a, a small version of the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah preaches God's great judgment upon all the nations. Well, Zephaniah does too. He mentions all of these nations surrounding uh, Jerusalem and Judah. All of them. They're coming under judgment, coming under judgment, coming under judgment. And yet, this is also the time of Josiah. Josiah is a godly king a great-grandson of Hezekiah, a godly king during the time of Assyria. And and Josiah is trying to bring about reform. He's trying to bring about revival. And he's doing all of these things. And yet, within God's people, there are those who still fall prey to the paganism of the culture. And so, on the one hand, they worship God. And on the other hand, they worship Baal. They're trying to combine these two things together. It's a serious time, and God's judgment's going to come, but there are faithful within the nation who have been caught properly by the Spirit of God in terms of the revival, who are faithful to all the reforms that are being brought about. They're trying to to be all the people that God, the people of God as God wants them to be, but here's the truth and here's the reality. The judgment is coming 
three successive waves of Babylonian invasion culminating in the year 586 when the entire nation, except for a few stragglers, are carried off to Babylon. The righteous will suffer with the unrighteous during this time. And that's crucial for us to understand. That when God acts in this world, the righteous will suffer along with the unrighteous. And at that point then, the people of God need some kind of anchor to hold on to, to try to understand, God, what are you doing? Verse 17 is an incredible anchor, but it occurs in a context of of seven other verses that I want to read. So I want to go back and now read from Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, so you can have a sense of the context of what this verse really is all about. We've had judgment, judgment, judgment. But we come to this point in verse 14 of chapter 3, where God then says to his people, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all of the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Now, in this restoration that we see promised here, a kind of earthly restoration for the people of God when they are freed from their exile to Babylon and return to the promised land. In that earthly picture, we have a spiritual type of everything that God has planned for and done for us, his people, for now and for all eternity in his promised son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this last section, as I've said, verse 17 stands out as the kind of epitome, the summation of all that God has said and promised in terms of that restoration. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And that leads us then to understand what is the major theme that we find in this section and particularly in this verse. And it can be stated this way. God declares, in verse 17, God declares his heart and attitude 
toward his people when he reconciles them again to himself. God declares his heart and his attitude toward his people when he reconciles them again to himself. Now, I want us to look at verse 17 from three perspectives. First would be a literary perspective, where we see in this verse an echo from a former time of redemption. Second would be a Christ-centered perspective, the lens of Christ's fulfillment of this prophecy. And then thirdly, a personal perspective, a believer's perspective, the delight of God in his redeemed. So I begin with the literary perspective. There is in this verse a literary echo of a former time of redemption. And so I want to take you to that former time, the time of the Exodus, right after the people of God had been freed from Egypt, have crossed the Red Sea, they've gathered on the other side, and Moses and the Israelites, led by Miriam with her tambourines and her singing, sing a song that's sometimes titled the Song of Moses, but it's really the song of the people of God. And the first three verses go this way. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now, so we see in Zephaniah 3.17 echoes of this very verse, this very theme, the idea that God is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Because translators, if you look across a span of several translators, translators are compelled to go, on the minimalist side or to the maximalist side in terms of grabbing hold of, the, of what is the underlying theme here in terms of, of God coming in and God being mighty to save. So there's a flexibility, there's translation uh, possibilities here. And so those who clearly see the echo will translate not in the vanilla way that the ESV has translated, uh, he is mighty to save, but in the more robust way in which the NAS, the NAS picks up a little bit, but some other translators too, where they say, they say what, what's going on here is this. Uh, he is a mighty warrior who will save. He is a victorious warrior, which is to say that the picture they understand and see, the connection they see between what God does to rescue his people from judgment, which is the promise of Zephaniah 3.17, mirrors what God did when he brought his people out of Israel. Out of, out of Egypt, that great redemption, and how God is designated. The Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. The covenant name is attached to the concept that God is a God of war. God is a victorious warrior. And that's what we see going on in this passage. He saves those that he fights for. And when he saves those that he fights for, what does he do? Well, the Israelites did it for God. They rejoiced and sang. But we're told through Zephaniah here that God himself is the one who's the victorious warrior and who sings. 
Because that was customary in Old Testament times. It was customary for the great warriors, the great victors, when they had done a great feat and saved the people that they were representing, they would sing a victorious war song. And that is what is being specified here. God has fought for. God has saved his people. He rejoices. And he sings. He sings his victory song. He celebrates in what he has done. So from this literary perspective, the picture that the prophet wants you to see is to picture God this way. To remove any idea that God is some abstract concept. But to see God as the one who comes into this world and he wages war against evil and against sin... And, and when he has accomplished all that he has intended to do, uh, he doesn't just step back and wipe his brow as though he's just finished a hard day's labor. He celebrates. Now, I know in our culture, we honestly know little of war. We, we don't have much in terms of pictures of, of this. Probably most of us who are sports aficionados or fanatics or whatever, whether it's Major League Baseball or what once was Major League Football, hardly anymore. But we would see incredible celebrations when some great victory was accomplished. Uh, it's not surprising that you would see NFL receivers or running backs dance in the end zone. There's something inside our nature as human beings to celebrate when a great victory has been won. But this is what we're told that God has done. And he sings with gladness. He rejoices. And he sings loudly. Not like us when we're trying to sing a cappella. <laughs> he sings loudly. So I want you to capture that picture of God toward his people. See this through the lens of God, the victorious warrior. Picture that God has celebrated and sings loudly with joy over all that he's done. See the great joy that God experiences and saving us from our sin. Now, the second perspective is the Christ-centered perspective. And, and remember, we spent all the year 2019 looking at the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. Seeing all the ways in which the Old Testament speaks of Christ, all the ways in which the Old Testament uh, finds its fulfillment in Christ. And, and that's the way we can also look at Zephaniah 3.17. The full understanding of this verse must come through looking at it through the lens of Christ. Now, there is a scripture that reminds us of why we're able to do this. One of the many that we can find in the New Testament. But 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, For all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That, it is, that is why it is through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
So verse 17 is one of those yes and amen verses that we find in the Old Testament in which we can celebrate Christ. Now, when we look at it that way, what do we see in verse 17? We see the person and the work of Christ. We see the incarnation and we see the atonement as the fulfillment of the spiritual realities which Zephaniah is speaking of. The very first line says this, The Lord your God is in your midst. That is ultimately fulfilled in the incarnation, historically. It's the fulfillment of the covenantal theme. All through the Old Testament, the covenantal theme is this. I am your God, and you are my people, and I will be with you, and I will dwell among you. That dwelling with God dwelling with his people is called the Emmanuel principle. God with us, Emmanuel. And it was, first of all, given in the time of Moses in terms of the tabernacle. God creates the tabernacle so that his presence could be with his people. Then it has that far more static thing, what happens when Jerusalem and all Israel gets established, and the third king of the united monarchy, when Solomon's temple is built, and God's glory comes down and fills that temple, the presence of God with his people. But then through the successive stages of judgment, uh, it looks as though Ichabod, the glory of the Lord, has departed. And we don't see that glory again until the coming of Christ. In John chapter 1, we are told that the Word is God. In verse 14, and the Word became flesh. And the Word there, and he dwelt among us for a while, is also translatable as, and he tabernacled among us for a while. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the one and only of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so what we have when this statement is said, the Lord your God is in your midst, is this, this theme of God coming to dwell with his people, most eminently fulfilled in the person of Christ. When Jesus came into this world, he could say to his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father. God in the midst of his people, in and through Christ. But the second line of, of, chapter, of chapter 3, verse 17 is, and he is mighty to save. And that, that speaks to the work of Christ. Uh, Christ has demonstrated in his own work this mighty power of God to save. And, of course, we see this in terms of the, the atonement. Now, now, the overall and paramount themes connected to the atonement of Christ is death upon the cross are what we would call priestly. That is to say, Christ on the cross is both the priest, the high priest of God, and the sacrifice. But the New Testament doesn't just stop with the priestly aspects of the ministry of Christ to express what the atonement does. The mighty to save concept that connected in the Old Testament to God as a man of war are no less present in the New Testament in the person of Christ. Now, if the expiation and the propitiation of the cross, the expiation which atones for our sin and our guilt, removes that, and the propitiation which satisfies the, the justice of God and removes his wrath, if those are particularly priestly, 
we might say that the redemption that buys people back from being enslaved, which often would happen because a conquering king might have to go into someone else's territory and, and save back his people who have been taken. And always the idea is that when there's war, there's conflict, and the resolution of conflict is going to be peace. So the concept of reconciliation and the concept of redemption apply biblically in terms of Christ coming under that theme of being a victorious warrior. The Latin phrase is Christus Victor. This is Christ. He is mighty to save. And we have this stated for us in the New Testament. In Colossians 1, excuse me, Colossians chapter 2, in verses 14 and 15, we read that God has canceled the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. That would be more of the the, the legal kingdom priestly way, and the debts are canceled because of the death of Christ. But he goes on to say, God set this aside, nailing it to the cross. And then God disarmed. That's a military concept. God disarmed the rulers and authorities, the evil rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So there is Christ the victor. And, of course, the book of Revelation brings these ideas together in a huge, huge way. And so in the 19th chapter of Revelation, John looks into heaven. Heavens are open, and verse 11 says, Behold, a white horse. Now, within the Roman Empire, a white horse was a symbol of victory. It was sometimes the case that the Caesars coming in from a victorious battle would ride into Rome on a white horse. The theme of victory from a general who was conquered. Christ coming back to this world on a white horse. Symbol of victory. Where John goes on to record, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And with Christ are the armies of heaven, And Jesus is designated as the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And he strikes down the nations with his sharp sword that comes from his mouth. And then he rules over the nations as a conquering Christ with a rod of iron. All this New Testament symbolism expands, even explodes the concept that Christ is mighty to save. Now, the third perspective is the believer's perspective. And you might look at these first two perspectives and say, that's really interesting to the intellect. You know, that's really good to know these things about Christ. I would hope that it would uh, bridge the gap 18 inches between the brain and the heart, 16 inches, 14, 12 inches, <laughs> whatever the distance is. We would hope that that which you would understand with your mind would actually reside deeply within your heart that you would make that translation, that it would be glorious to you, that that there's this literary uh, connection between what Zephaniah is saying and what happened at the Exodus, because the Exodus itself is a great theme of redemption. And that it would be something that would grip you to be able to see through the lens of Christ how this verse is fulfilled 
ultimately in Jesus and everything that Jesus did. Christ in our midst. To know the reality of Emmanuel, God with us. And to know experientially the power of Christ to save. He is mighty to save. And to be able to say and to give credit to Jesus, he's been the victory in my life. But there's now a third perspective from this verse. It's the one that's most difficult for us to believe. And I want you to believe it. I want you to believe what God is saying to us in this verse. And I want to put it this way. I want you to see that this verse answers three very, very personal questions. The believer's perspective. What we need to hold on to. Because this is where this verse takes us to be an anchor during the strange, strange things we're going through and a very broken and mismanaged country. Three questions. Where is Christ with respect to you? What has Christ done for you? How is it between you and Christ? Where is Christ with respect to you? How does, how does that apply to you? Well, we, we read, you know, the, the Lord your God is in your midst. But listen to what Paul says in terms of what that means in Christ. Where is Christ with respect to you? Colossians 1, verse 27. Paul writes, To the principalities and powers God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where is Christ? He's in you. Christ has chosen to dwell in you. During these difficult times where the world is having great tribulation, Christ has never left you. Christ is in you. And Paul goes on to say, chapter 2, 6, and 7, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught. And later on in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, and, and let the, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And in verse 16, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And, and in Ephesians chapter 3, verse, verse 17, Paul has prayed that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Where is Christ with you? He's in you. He's dwelling in your hearts by faith. Believe that. He's in your life. And he's not one who comes and goes. 
He comes and stays. What has Christ done for you? He has mightily saved you. Every true Christian can say that Christ, like a mighty warrior, has delivered me from the day of judgment and all the demands of holy justice, which has been your greatest need all throughout your life. Your continued greatest need through the rest of your life. You can live every day in light of this great truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 1, Romans 8, verse 1. Your sins have been credited against Christ. Christ's righteousness has been credited to you. In the eyes of the only one who matters, you have been atoned for. All judgment and justice has been paid for. You carry no condemnation at all. You are free forevermore from the penalty of sin. And Christ carries his work further and deeper into your life, cleansing you from those sins he died for to set you free. So that, as Zephaniah says, in this great redemptive love that Christ has for you, he will quiet you in his love. He will give you rest in terms of this inner conflict within our souls. He will quiet you with the assurances of his steadfast, perfect, never-changing Love by which he has redeemed you. He will quiet you. All that turmoil inside with his love. He declares to you, the war is over. And it has been won. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness. You've been translated into the kingdom of his beloved son. How then is it with you and Christ? Zephaniah 3.17 has a double emphasis. The third line says, Christ rejoices over you with gladness. The fifth line says, He exalts over you with loud singing. Here is the truth about you and Christ. And believe it, those he saves are his delight. Those Jesus saves are his delight. Some of us have struggled in our lives. Wondering, did anyone ever really delight 
in me? Did anyone ever delight in me? Did anyone ever care for me? Did, did anyone ever find joy in my life, my existence, who I was as a human being? It is such a deep need in us. It becomes sometimes an awful, twisted and distorted and broken desire within us to count, to be meaningful to someone, to have somebody say, whether we believe them or not, but they act it out or they pretend, I love you, I care for you. Those Jesus saves are his delight. In the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, verse 2, we read this incredible, incredible word. We are told to look to Jesus, to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You are that joy that was set before Jesus as he endured the cross. You are the joy with which Jesus rejoices. You are those over whom he delights and sings with loud singing. He went to the cross to save you. And upon his resurrection and ascension, he sang his loud victory song, rejoicing that he had delivered you from your sin. Gloriously happy that he was your redeemer. The greatest sense of fulfillment in being the one who had delivered you from the eternity of hell. Do you believe this? How is it with you and Christ? Do you believe he delights in you and rejoices in you and does so with loud singing? We'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, I think. Yes. When you come to the table this morning, I want you to come with one thing to believe. Jesus, you delight in me. Let's pray. We could scarcely ever believe that this could be true if it were not declared to us in your word, Almighty God. 
that we, that Jesus died for, are also His greatest delight. Please show us more deeply. This is how Jesus has loved us, loves us now, and will love us forever. As Jesus said to his disciples, he wanted their joy to be made full. Please, Father, give us the joy of knowing that Jesus delights in us. In his name we pray. Amen. The scripture that we use to bring us to the time of gathering around the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. This is, uh, in the New Testament, the fullest exposition of what uh, the scriptures would tell us about the Lord's table. It's not the only place, but it's the fullest passage that we have. And we note that the Apostle Paul says that he received this directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You know, we have the gospel narratives, and their narratives about the Lord's table and the time there and what Jesus said is actually fairly brief. And there's not much of an exposition of the meaning or significance in the life of a Christian. But Paul speaks to this, reminds us of the weightiness of this time of coming uh, to the Lord in this way. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now, what Paul means by this, what he has to say here, uh, has been confounded in many times within the history of the church and made somewhat confusing. But the simple and direct understanding of what Paul is saying here is that the table of the Lord is for those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who consciously confess him, who recognize him, who identify themselves as Christians, and who uh, see in the symbolism of the table, the bread and the wine, uh, those things that represent the body and blood of Christ. That they see that this is a way in which the gospel itself is proclaimed once again to us as Christians. That the body of Christ was, was placed upon the cross and he died, and, and the blood was that which was shed that demonstrated that of his death. 
And so by, by taking of the bread and partaking of the fruit of the vine, eating and drinking, we are actually demonstrating an understanding here of what true faith is. Um, true Christian faith sadly has been reduced at times to going into a restaurant, seeing a banquet, looking at it and saying, I see and recognize the banquet. I've read the menu. I know the calorie count. I know how much this can satisfy someone. I know what this will do for someone. And just simply believe it in that sense. That's far different than coming into a restaurant and knowing everything about every aspect of the food that's upon the table and sitting down and actually partaking of the benefits of what's before you. The Lord's Supper is a way of basically saying you do not have true faith unless you recognize that genuine faith is like eating bread and drinking wine. It's like taking into you that which actually gives you everlasting life. It is, of course, a metaphor. It is a symbol. But by God's own decree, it is a means of grace in the sense that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming once again, publicly and into your own heart, the gospel of what God has done in Christ to save us and to save us by faith. And the Apostle Paul says, believing that this table and this meal is for you, not understanding that, not believing that, you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. You're violating the very meaning of what the table is all about. And so that's why we customarily say that the table here is not the table of Providence Reformed Church. It's not the table of any particular church. It's the table of the church, the people of God. It's the table of those who know they belong to Jesus, who know that Jesus delights in them. So let's pray and ask the Lord to set apart what is ordinary unto something that is sacred in terms of a sacred use today. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask that you would take that which we have that represents the bread, the body of Christ, that which we have which represents the fruit of the vine, the very blood of Christ. We ask that you would take these things, tokens as they are, material things as they are, and set them apart to be how you have ordained them in Scripture, to be signs and seals, that which represents properly, spiritually, truly, what Christ has done for us. And we would pray then that by eating and drinking, uh, that which in and of itself is insignificant to truly nourish our physical bodies, but nevertheless, because of what these things represent, and by taking these things in faith, you would spiritually feed us again, upon all that Christ has done for us. And in this, in faith, believing how greatly Jesus rejoices over us. This we pray now. In Christ's name, amen. Stu is going to distribute the elements to you, and they're coming again in those sanitized little, little packets of uh, the wafer and the juice together. And uh, I'd ask for us to, you know, open them up, but then we will uh, take them all together simultaneously.
And even as we uh, serve communion in this way, it ought to um, encourage us to pray for the day when we can go back to all the ways in which we worship in non-COVID, non-strange kinds of ways to pray again for God to be merciful to us, to merciful to people, merciful in all the ways in which we desire to be coming together as his people and caring for one another, worshiping together, able to do these things without these strange kinds of restrictions. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, which this little wafer symbolizes. So this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, our Savior took the cup, which this represents as fruit of the vine. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. One of our customs, which we have not been able to do for months and months and months now, is we would normally remember our deacon's fund, uh, that which we give to in terms of uh, help to those who have particular kinds of uh, need, what we call our, our mercy ministry. So I would just encourage you to remember the. we do have people within the church family uh, who maybe need help from time to time, and so do not forget the deacon's fund during this time. Michael, if you'll come and lead us in our closing hymn, and then we will uh, have the benediction.